So last week we began uh, just a two-week series on uh, looking at the life of David and particularly David's choices uh, surrounding the situation with Bathsheba. And the reason that I am sharing this is, is that if we are serious about building church, if we're serious about building the kingdom of God, then we need to think seriously about the choices that we make, okay? We don't just live as individuals and make our own choices and nobody else gets affected. When we make a choice, when we make a decision, the people who are round about us are affected, okay? When we make a decision to get into the things of God and get closer to God, that has an impact on those who are round about us. It has an impact on our families, on our friends, those in our, our homes. And if we want to take great strides in God, then we can't be shackled by sin. Have you ever tried to walk somewhere with heavy boots on? Imagine trying to go for a jog with a pair of steel toe caps on. That would hurt your feet eventually. Have you ever thought about what it must be like for somebody who's a prisoner and is in shackles? And, you know, you, you see these guys with the orange suits on and, you know, they're handcuffed here and they're, they're, their legs are tied together and even these shackles are shackled together. And, and you've just got to kind of walk along like that. You know, if you really want to run a race, that's not a good way to start. And here's the, here's the issue. The things that get into our spirits and get into our minds and get into our hearts, these are the things which will they'll hold us back from really running with God and finding His purpose for us. And so before we started kicking off the series in Acts, this is a message which has been on my heart for a long time, and I, I just kind of felt this is the time to share this message. And so we kicked it off last week by looking at the life of David. So just to give you a little recap, um, it's David's choices. This is part two. And last week, we thought about three different areas. Uh, David's position. So David was at home instead of being out with his troops. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it was, the, the problem is that it left him open to being vulnerable to temptation. And we spent most of the time last week looking at the progression in David's thought life and also in his actions. This progression was something that David would then later live to regret. We thought about how David saw a woman, David began to stare, and then David began to search out this woman. And the question we had, you know, one of the questions last week was, why was Bathsheba uh, bathing naked in full view of the palace? And we kind of thought, was there a motive behind that? Was there a reason that she did that? Was she intentionally trying to seduce David? And that progression led to actions that David would later regret. And the third thing was passion. What followed uh, was a moment of passion, and along came a child as a result of that. And so that's kind of what we thought about last week. And I want to begin to read up uh, in uh, chapter 12 uh, this week so that we see that actually these choices have consequences. Our choices always have consequences. Never intended, but everything that we decide to do will have a consequence. If we make a choice to bless somebody, we maybe take some money out of our pocket and we give it to somebody because we feel that the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to bless that person, then that 
choice will have a consequence. It will be a good consequence for you and for that person. All of the choices that we make have consequences. And it's the same in this passage. So let's read uh, 2 Samuel. Uh, We're going to chapter 12 this time, just so that we get uh, more of the story. And this is what it says. The Lord sent Nathan. Nathan was the prophet. He sent him to David. And when he came to him, he said, he begins to tell him a story. Have you ever had to be confronted by something? There's maybe a good way to confront and a bad way to confront. Well, Nathan decides to use a story. He says there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Listen to David's response in verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Verse 6, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are the man. Imagine the moment where David realizes that all of the things which he's been trying to hide in his heart have suddenly been exposed in an instant. The penny drops and he understands exactly what's happening in the situation. You are that man. Nathan goes on to explain to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. What a position to be in. King, having everything that he asks for in an instant. And the prophet says to him, if all of that hadn't been enough, God is saying through the prophet to David, if all that hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. What does that say about God? But God goes on to say, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will, be, will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own, own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing I will do this thing in broad daylight 
before all Israel. What a terrible thing to happen. Then David said to Nathan, and this is when it really, the rubber hits the road, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Do you know, each of us can only ever be truly accountable for ourselves. We can't be accountable for other people's choices and decisions and the things that they do. We can only be accountable for ourselves. We can't repent for somebody else. We can't confess somebody else's sins. We can only do that for ourselves. We each have a responsibility. Verse 13 goes on to say, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Uh, you are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And this is just such a tragic set of circumstances. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and wept, uh, fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead. He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. So then he asked the question, is the child dead? Yes, they replied. Then David got up from the ground. After he washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. I don't know if that would be your first choice. I don't know if it would be my first choice, but this was David's first choice after the circumstances. He got up, he washed, he changed, he made himself presentable, and then he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. It's an incredible passage of scripture. There are things in this passage which I confess I struggle with. I don't really understand. But nonetheless what we can learn is that there are consequences from David's actions. We're going to think a little bit more about the story today. These three points, and uh, we don't get to the last point today, Psalm 51, because there's just no time to actually get through it. So Psalm 51, you will need to read for yourself. And I think in the cool light of day, we, 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 we can look at things and we can wonder, why did we attempt to cover up sin 
See, when we begin to try and cover things up, it's like building what they call a house of cards. Have you ever seen a house of cards? There's a picture on the screen. When we try to cover things up, it's like building a house of cards. It doesn't take very much. A little flick, a little puff, and the house falls down. And David realized that he had done the wrong thing. And the problem was that rather than deal with it, he went into stealth mode. See, remember last week we talked about his two options. There were two routes which he could have taken. He could have taken the route of resistance, but he could also have taken the route of repentance. David took the wrong route. He made the wrong choice. Rather than repent before God, he decided to resist God. He decided to go into stealth mode and try to cover things up. Now, we know that David was a man who knew the law. David was a man who could probably recite the first five books of the Bible off by heart. We call them uh, uh, the the law. We can call them the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible filled with the, the law that Moses wrote down. And in Numbers chapter 32, 23, it says this, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. The problem is David began to devise a way to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy. It started with a thought that led, led him to sending for Uriah to come home from the front, front so that he could sleep with his wife and it looked as if he was the father. And so the messenger is sent out to fetch Uriah. But this isn't a simple journey. This is a picture of the terrain near where they were doing battle. This is a modern picture because they didn't have cameras in those days. Okay. And a messenger is sent out. So this is kind of like a 40-mile journey as the crow flies. But people didn't fly in those days. And I don't know if anybody in here can fly uh, yeah, MD mastered that. So we have to get on our feet. Shanks is pony. And this journey would be a bit like traveling up to Perth without the A9 or without a car. So you can imagine that it's not just a straightforward journey. It's going to take you a bit of time to do this. And I wonder what was on Uriah's mind as he was coming from the front all the way back to Jerusalem to speak to David. Why have I been sent for? Why does he want to speak to me? What's going on back home that I need to know about? And then when he gets back home, he starts having this conversation with the king. Verse 7 says, when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Job was. This is the previous passage, by the way. This is verse uh, chapter 11, sorry. David asked him how Job was and how the soldiers were and how's the war going, how are things going? And I think Uriah must have been thinking, eh, what? I've had to come all the way back here for you to ask me these questions. And do you ever get that feeling where you know when you're speaking to somebody that there's something else going on underneath? It's funny how we have a wee radar for that, don't we? And Mary has a saying when she detects this, and it's called, right, spill the beans, okay? <laughs> There's something going on here, and you're not telling me the full story. Just spill the beans. Just say it as it is. And I can only imagine Uriah standing before the king, 
all-powerful. Anything the king said went. And in those days, kings were different. You know, if the king said, that was it, that was you. If the king wanted to bless you, you were blessed and you were fortunate. And he must have been saying, why am I here? Why is he asking these questions? Why is he, why is he saying to me to go home? And why is he giving me this special gift to go home with? And this is how Uriah responds. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 9. Because we're still in second, uh, verse, uh, chapter 11 at the moment. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. And this whole passage says a lot about the character of Uriah. And I'm quite sure that Uriah also was aware of how beautiful his wife was. Remember last week we thought about how the Bible says that she wasn't just beautiful, but she was beautiful to look at. Do you remember that? And here is Uriah. He has the opportunity to go home and be with his glamorous wife. What would you have done, boys? Eh? What would you have done? I know what I would have done. I'd have been saying, thanks, Mr. King, and thanks for the gift, and I'm going to have a wee rest at home. That's what I would have done, but not Uriah. He sleeps outside in the entrance to the palace out of a sense of loyalty to the king, out of a sense of loyalty to his commander, Joab, and to his fellow soldiers. There's a guiding principle in here, and it's called integrity. Integrity is what you do when nobody is looking. Uriah is away from his commander. He is away from his men from the battlefront. And he even has the blessing of the king to go home and relax, and yet he acts with integrity. Uriah's choices highlight how far David has strayed from the safe paths that he should have been walking. But there's something else in here, and as I reflected on this passage, I thought, why didn't Uriah go home to be with his wife? And what is it that surrounds that? Is there something in there that we can learn from, because it was really strange. I'm thinking, that seems like a strange thing to do. And it made me think about Bathsheba, because I'm pretty sure she must have known that Uriah was in town. Do you think so? Because he's come all the way back from the front. Here he is, he's up in front of the king, he's given leave to go home, he's sleeping out at the entrance to the palace. I think she must have known that he was around. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But then I wonder, did Bathsheba feel neglected by her husband? When he has the opportunity to go and spend some time legitimately with his wife, because the king has given him permission, and he has the opportunity to go and do that, and yet he decides not to. And I wonder if Bathsheba was craving the attention of her husband. Just a thought. I could be wrong, but there's a verse in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll read it from the New Living Translation because it's very, very specific. Because we each, as married couples, have a responsibility to one another. I know I'm speaking to one particular group of people now. But it says here, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Verse 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, 
And the husband gives authority over his body, his own body, to his wife. You see, it's a different situation in a marriage relationship. This is the relationship that Bathsheba and Uriah had. They had a marriage relationship. And rather than thinking, I am, they think we are. Marriage becomes not about me, but it becomes about we. And there's something changes, or something has to change in our thinking. We no longer think about ourselves. We have to think about others and others' needs. And as children come along, we need to think about their needs. And we need to think about our own freedoms and choices that we have and the things that we need to sacrifice in order to bring on our kids as well. You see, there's a corporate responsibility in families. And I think there's a corporate responsibility in the church as well. It's not just about your need and my need, but about our need. There's a corporate responsibility that we have as a church. Anyway, just some thoughts as I was thinking about this passage. Verse 10, David says, uh, uh, when, when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And this is Uriah's response. Listen to this. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Uriah isn't an Israelite. Uriah is a Hittite. He's not, he's not an Israelite by birth, and yet he's given himself wholly to this God-ordained people. And his loyalty, notice what he says first, his loyalty is to the ark. And if you're not sure what that is, the ark is part of what was built when they were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. It was what was in the Holy of Holies. Steve talked about the curtain being torn apart today. What was inside that place in the very holiest place of the tabernacle and then the temple later on was the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. And here is Uriah. He's not even an Israelite and he's concerned with the Ark and with Israel and Judah and with his commander and his friends who are out in the field. And he makes some choices based on that. David, of all people, should have known better. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read about the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to Jerusalem. And it says here in verse 5, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. As the Ark was coming back from the place where it had been stolen and taken to, they were celebrating with all their might because what was God's was being returned to Israel. In fact, the ark was so important that David wanted to make a permanent house for it. And it was Nathan the prophet who to come along and say to him, by the way, that's not going to be your job. That's going to be your son's job to do. And this is what Nathan says. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish a throne, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. And there's a certain irony, I think, that Solomon is the one to build the temple where the ark would eventually go and yet Solomon is Bathsheba's son. Solomon is the second son born to David 
and Bathsheba. Can you understand that? It just is mysterious sometimes to me as I think about these things. And here is David trying to cover up and he doesn't know what's going to unfold in the circumstances. David's last chance, verse 13. Stay, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. What is David doing? He's trying to get the man drunk in order for him to be sort of really, really casual about his decisions. He's trying his hardest to get David uh, to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife in order to cover up what's happening. And what is demonstrated in this situation is the hardness of David's heart. I've used the phrase a callous heart. You know, when you play the guitar a lot, see these fingers? These fingers grow calluses on them, right? And if I've not been playing for a while, these fingers get sore when I'm holding down chords. But the more I play, the harder they get and the less sore it becomes. I grow calluses on the end of my fingertips so that the guitar playing isn't sore. What's happening? You're beginning to lose feeling. You're beginning to lose the sensation that's why it's not so sore. There's a hardening of the skin. And that's exactly what was happening in this situation. There was a hardening of David's heart. And this is where it gets to. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Can you imagine that? Uriah was carrying his own death warrant and he didn't know. And such was his loyalty to the king that he didn't even attempt to uncover the plot. If it was me, if it was me, I would have smelt a rat. I would have. I'd been like, he's up to something. And now he's given me this letter to take back to Job. Why am I even here to start with? What's in this letter? And I don't know about you, but I would have been so tempted to go, all right, okay. So that's the plan, is it? Well, I think I might just be taking a wee exit stage left. That would have been me, but, but Uriah didn't even, he didn't even attempt. And we read in this story, as you read on, that Uriah died fighting in the heat of the battle. And not just him, but others as well. The decision to send these guys into the thick of it was a strategic disaster. David was a military strategist, and he knew better. That's why he made that decision. He was intentional about his decision, a decision that would ultimately lead to Uriah's death. And Uriah was faithful, faithful in his service to the king and to his commander-in-chief. I see a different world here, a different world altogether one of loyalty to the king and to his purposes, even if that means, even if that means his own life. And Job's not happy with the situation. As we read in verse 20 to 21, Job then sends somebody back to give the news to the king. 
And this is what he says. Well, when you tell the king what's happened, the king might get angry. And so tell him this. Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of, uh, I don't know what that name is. Sorry, I can't even read that out. Anyway, maybe I've made a typo. Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him in front of the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? And he's talking about something which has happened in Israel's history. And I wonder if Job was saying, by the way, I knew this was a bad idea right from the start. Is he saying to the servant, by the way, the king might get angry and tell him this. By the way, I think this is a bad idea. This was a bad plan. This was only ever going to end in disaster. Is he trying to tell David the same message? Why why did you send us to the front? Why did you ask us to do this? Because you knew, or you should have known, that this would end in disaster, and it did end in disaster. And so the messenger goes back to David, and this is what it says in verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Job, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Job. What does it sound like to you? To me, it sounds like, oh well, hey-ho, that's what happens in war. People get killed. What a shame. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking, you don't care. Your heart, heart has become so hard that you don't care anymore. It's just such a a drastic place to come to in life where covering up his own sin has become the priority, even at the expense of somebody else's life. But little did David know that there was a storm coming. Do you know, our sin has consequences. Even when we come before God and we confess our sins, The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God does that. That's what's amazing about God's grace. But there is always consequences to our choices. We can be forgiven. We can receive grace. We can know what it is to be forgiven and feel that deep inside our hearts. But our decisions may still have consequences. Very often they do. And I think sometimes we forget that in church life because we talk about grace and how amazing it is, and it is. But our decisions have consequences. They affect the people around about us. They might affect us in ways that we never thought. What can we learn from this story? Well, we can learn that God sees. There is an all-seeing spirit And whatever deception people try to weave, God sees straight through it into the heart. And God is ultimately the judge of every heart. This is why we're urged to guard our hearts, for out of our hearts flow everything about us, everything that pertains to our life, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, 
even our misdeeds. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Everything flows out of the heart. And I think often our problems are more internal and more spiritual than we are inclined to think. Listen to what James says about this whole area of temptation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. This is James chapter 1, verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. I added in the word else there. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires, that's an internal thing, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. This is what God said to the first couple in the garden. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because as soon as you do that, you shall surely die. They didn't physically die right away, but they began that process. We need to know there's an all-seeing spirit who judges every single heart, okay? No matter how well you think you know people, God knows them intimately better. In this story, there should have been safeguards. And had David put in safeguards into his life, he would not have found himself in this mess, as Ollie would say, to Stan. Here's another fine mess. Well, he got himself into this one. David should have dealt with it on the roof. In fact, he shouldn't even have been on the roof. Let's go there. Seeing should not have become staring. Staring should not have become searching. And searching should not have become sensuality. Remember the analogy from last week, if you were here last week? I'm being tempted. Is it, is it starting to rain? Is that rain, I feel? When it's just a tiny little temptation? And then before you know it, the heavens are opened and it's like, there's no doubt it's raining here. And when the rain comes... The rivers swell up and eventually they burst their banks so that they're out of control. All the natural boundaries of the river are out of control. Can I say that when you feel the rain of temptation, put up your spiritual umbrella, pray, and ask God to help you with the temptation, regardless of what it is. This is a very specific example. But we're all tempted in different ways, by different things, by different situations. We know the things in our own hearts that are areas of temptation. When we feel temptation coming, we need to get up the umbrella of prayer because ultimately it's God inside of us who gives us the ability to resist temptation. And also the last thing in this is stages of life. At every stage of life, in fact, every stage of life has its challenges, its pressures, its demands, and its temptations. Temptations do not lessen with age. Young people, let me tell you, if you're tempted now by things, it's not going to change. You'll always be tempted by things. The point is, when you're young, to learn how to deal with temptation and realize that you don't do it in your own strength, but you ask God to come and give you the strength Temptations don't lessen with age. And I think perhaps temptations fall in different ways as we experience different stages in life. And there's so much more that we could say about that particular part of this subject. So David tried to cover up. We think about the conversations that went on. We think about the, the hardening of David's heart 
and we can learn from that. We have the opportunity to learn. And then David is told a story by the prophet Nathan, a story about a lamb. And I'm not going to read through that story again for the sake of time. But we know David's response. He was angry. David was a shepherd. In fact, he's referred to as the shepherd king. And he knows all about sheep and sheep-related issues and problems. And so he relates to this story. And he's incensed by what he hears. His sense of justice overtakes him. And it is expressed in anger. And this is what he says. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And the reference that David is making here to the man having to pay four times over is actually from Exodus chapter 21. David is not ignorant of the law. In fact, maybe I've got my, my references wrong here. Uh, no, no, it's, it's Exodus 22 and 1, uh, where it says that the man has to pay four times over. And David didn't realize that what he was saying in response to Nathan was actually quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, where it says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man uh, who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And then Nathan says those crucial words, you are that man. This is heavy, heavy stuff here. In fact, it's so heavy, I actually had a dream last night. This is a weird, weird, weird dream. And I think it's maybe relevant because it just comes back to me the now as I'm speaking about this. And it was a dream about being in a prison cell. And it was the weirdest experience ever because it was really, really small. And the facilities that we use when we go to the bathroom were all very kind of weird and strange and basic. And the area to shower was really, really basic. And it was the weirdest, weirdest feeling ever of being trapped and being in a place where I think, I don't want to be here. And then I noticed how you, in my dream, I noticed how you had to shower yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those kind of habitual, do the same thing every day in the morning type people. And uh, I'm very particular about my shower. I like a certain pressure in the shower and all that kind of stuff. And I'm looking at what I've got to shower with. I'm thinking, I didn't even bring my shower gel. Where's my shampoo? Where's, where's, my, where's my stuff? There's nothing in this place. And it made me kind of think about the consequences of the decisions that we make. Sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in a cell that's of our own making because of the choices that we have made. And it's only when we get there and we're in that place and we realize we're hemmed in that we go, actually, I put myself in this place. This is horrible. I don't like this. I don't like having my freedom curtailed. And so there are consequences to the decisions that we make. David knew the law. David knew what he was up for with the thing that he had done. And we all get caught up in the fact that he had an affair with Bathsheba. 
and think how terrible that was. I, I sometimes actually look at what else happened after that and I think, how could he send somebody off to their death? I, I, I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine how he got to that place. And God says to him, if, if you'd just come and ask me, I could have given you more than you already had and he had everything he needed. Sin always has consequences. We may be forgiven, but there's always a cost. The consequences might vary depending on what we've done. And sometimes those consequences, as we read about in the story of David, affect our household. They affect the generation that come after us. They can do, put it that way. It's a serious, serious situation. and almost finished. What can we learn from this? Well, I think we can learn that sin is deceptive. And we can sometimes be blind to sin in our own lives. Just like we can become blind to the way that we come across to other people, whether it's physically, we all have a particular smell depending on what aftershave we wear. And we can become blind to ourselves. And I think if we begin to chase after things that are not helpful for us, you know that when I was going through probationary training, uh, the thing that was talked about was gold glitter and girls. And if that's what we're chasing after, it's like chasing after the wind. And if you don't know what I mean by that, let me just put it more clearly. If you're chasing after money, power, or sex, then you're chasing after something that will never fulfill you, never satisfy you. Because you can never get enough of these things. God has a way that he has designed for us to live and we need to live within the boundaries that he has set for us. And when we learn to live inside those boundaries, then we experience the health that God has for us. So sin is deceptive. There's also the double standards that we see in this story. And it's very easy to stand back in judgment of David and of anyone else who sins for that matter. Very, very easy. But we too are also guilty of double standards. We must remember that each of us are fallen human beings. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. No exceptions. Even the people that we joke about, that we think are perfect and never make any mistakes, we're all flawed. We're all fallen. And this is what Jesus says to those people who are listening to his sermon on the mount. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We need to do a wee self-assessment exercise and realize that each of us have fallen short of God's standards. And the last thing here is that deception and double standards leads to death. It could be the death of your relationships. It could be that your health is affected in so many other things. 
And when you realize that you've fallen, you begin to understand that part of you inside has died. Your relationship with God isn't what it should be, and you know that it's suffering. <coughs> and you also know that the things that we do create a distance between us and God. That was the problem right at the start. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on a cross. That the distance that's between us and God, that sin separates us from God, Jesus died in order that our sins would be upon him. He took our sins upon himself and he paid the price for those sins. When we come and we ask God forgiveness, it isn't that he's just saying, ah, it's okay, it doesn't matter. He's saying, that really did matter because Jesus died on the cross for that sin. That sin was put upon him. So it does matter. Yes, we can be forgiven, but we need to realize that the grace that we experience freely is because the price was paid in Jesus and in his body. There is always a cost. God says through Jesus, I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. And we can enter into that and we walk in that and live in that. And that's the place where God wants us to be. Not to be wrestling with the past. And it's, it's getting the balance between saying, okay, I know that I've messed up. I know that I can come before God and pray. I know that I can experience forgiveness. And we should experience that forgiveness in each other as well. But sometimes, okay, I realize because of that, this is what's happening now. Okay, I just need to live with that. I'll pray about that. But I need to live with that. David's response is seen as we read Psalm 51, and we don't have time to go into that today. Read Psalm 51, and you will see what I'm talking about. Psalm 51, there are three things which are very clear in that to me. Confession, conscience, and cleansing. And when you read that, we come to verse 10, where David says to God, and this is in the heart of the psalm, Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is where he comes to, and this is where we all need to come to, because we sometimes mess up. But God tells us to come back to this place of coming before him, of confessing our sin to him, and getting ourselves back into where we should be, so that we can then be the people who say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to do what you've called me to do. When it comes to building church, when it comes to building the kingdom of God, I'm ready. I want, I'm here. I want to play my part. I'm going to take that book and I'm going to pray through that and I'm going to play my part. I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen to God and say, what is it that you want me to do? And he might say, I want you to bring somebody to hear Bruce Davis in a few weeks' time. Come and bring somebody so that they can hear. They can hear. God uses us all in so many different ways. And I hope that as we've considered this particular message, and, you know, in one sense, it's a difficult message to bring. It's a difficult message to hear. But we need to be confronted with the realities of life and face up to these things and face up to our responsibilities. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Uh, musicians, if you could come back up. Father, we thank you for 
the reality of living under your grace. We thank you for the reality of being called into your family, of being called your son, and we are so blessed to be in that place. Lord, we know that you have a plan and purpose for each of our lives, that you love us and that you care for us. And Father, you care for us enough, and you care for us enough in order to correct us and to keep us moving in the direction that we should be going in. And Father, we just pray today, Lord, again, it's a very personal response to this message, however we decide to respond. And Father, I pray that if there are things in our lives which are not right, that you'd help us not to resist you and to become hardened in our hearts, but Father, to come before you in repentance and saying, okay, you're right, I'm wrong, no excuses, and turning around as we allow you through your Spirit to do that work in our lives. And so, Father, my prayer is that is a response that each of us would make today. Father, may we know your grace as we go into this week. Father, may we know your voice speaking into our lives as we go into this week. And Father, we just pray that you give us the confidence to respond to you, not as David did at first, but as David did when he came before you in repentance. And Father, we pray that we would not need to be confronted by somebody else in order to come to that place but that we would listen to the voice of the Spirit within us. Father, we ask that you'd help us to be who you call us to be. And maybe today there are some people in here who have never come to that place of inviting Jesus into their lives. And I'll just say today, if that is you, then today is a day where you can invite the Holy Spirit into your life. Maybe you don't know what that means, but essentially it's, it's God coming into your life. And if you've never invited God into your life, then you will never know what it means to have the strength of the Holy Spirit in you to really resist temptation and to live the life that God wants you to live. And so today, I encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit in just by saying a simple prayer and just repeat within your own heart these words as I pray them. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've made bad choices. I know that I have went my own way. I have not followed you. But today, I come before you and ask for your forgiveness. I repent of this, uh, the, the bad choices in my life. And I ask that you would come in to my life through your Holy Spirit and that you would live in me and empower me to live the life that you want me to live. In Jesus' name, amen.